The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, December 6th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, do you feel like the dialogue in movies has gotten harder to understand? It's not just you. Sound professionals dish on all the reasons why it's gotten worse in recent years. Plus, a giant steel structure coming soon to Tasmania has already started recording us to provide evidence of our shame to future civilizations. And honeybees that survived for weeks under volcanic ash after the eruption in the Canary Islands. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So back in October, when AMC Theaters announced an expansion of their open captions showings, I re-upped a Wired article from 2018 remarking on the growing practice of hearing people using captions. And in that piece, Jason Cahey argues that nothing has changed about the broader hearing public's auditory abilities. Rather, we consume so much that we might have a little more trouble cognitively following a piece of media. And on top of that, many people have turned into completionists wanting to fully grasp every single word, background dialogue, and other auditory action as described by captions that you might miss without them. He wrote, quote, Half of those words are spoken off-camera. In a very real way, we're not meant to know them, merely to register their hum. But like Google, closed captions are there, imminently accessible, ready to clarify the unclarities. And so, desperately, we, the paranoids and obsessive compulsives and postmodern completists, click. No, subtitles are not the solution. They flatten our perception. Sounds are more muted these days because there are too many of them, every utterance equally weighted and demanding of us total comprehension. Look at the words themselves. All too often, they're meaningless. Yet we painstakingly rewind Netflix anyway, backward, 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 stuck in a garbled loop. End quote. Kehi is arguing that we don't need to know everything, and if that's why you're using captions, maybe try freeing yourself from the compulsion to know every tiny detail and just enjoy the vibes. But in a more recent and more researched article in Slash Film, Ben Pearson argues that, actually, dialogue in movies has gotten worse in recent years. So the fact that more of us hearing folks use captions more often adds up. Mark Mangini, an Academy Award-winning sound designer behind films like Mad Max Fury Road and Blade Runner 2049, told Pearson, quote, There are a number of root causes. It's really a gumbo, an accumulation of problems that have been exacerbated over the last 10 years. That's kind of this time span where all of us in the filmmaking community are noticing that dialogue is harder and harder to understand. End quote. And one ingredient in that gumbo is directorial decisions to keep dialogue more realistic sounding, like Christopher Nolan keeping the muffled dialogue of characters with masks on in Tenant and The Dark Knight Rises instead of cleaning it up. 
Actors and current trends can also be the culprit. There are a number of actors who are basically known for being hard to understand, like Sylvester Stallone or Tom Hardy. And there's the whole trend away from theatrical over-enunciating and projecting to more natural, sometimes soft, even under-the-breath delivery. Which, sure, kind of works as an acting choice on set, but sound professionals have trouble making that discernible to audiences. Karen Baker-Landers, who's worked on Gladiator and Sky Skyfall told Slash Film, quote, No amount of volume is going to fix that. We're very careful to make sure there's clarity. You go in and volume graph up a vowel or one letter. You go in and you surgically, maybe if that's not right on camera, you slow it down. There's all kinds of things we spend hours trying to do that may help a performance. We really strive for that, end quote. A larger problem cited by many of the pros that Pearson spoke with, some only on the condition of anonymity for fear of backlash, is that sound and the people who work on it have been deprioritized in the industry in recent years as flashy visual effects have taken center stage. Pearson notes that many sound professionals report being disrespected on set, not given additional takes when needed for better sound or time to adjust recording equipment. And that's something many film professionals feel, not just sound professionals, you know, time and budgets are very strict these days, and there's a lot being rushed. There's also the changing technology. Because we can do so much more now with advanced sound editing software, directors and designers want more to be done, expect more to be done, and they can also request way more revisions because unlike with analog film when every edit reduced the quality, kind of like making a photocopy of a photocopy as sound mixer Thomas Curley described it, now you can make as many edits as you want and not worry about distortion, at least physically. Some sound professionals also think directors are relying too much on music to drive emotion these days. An anonymous sound pro told Pearson, quote, The technology we have today is so vastly improved that there's no limit to what can be added, whatever the director wants, for months on end. We literally have hundreds of tracks at our disposal. In a final mix, we therefore have a lot to deal with. Unending score smashed up against hundreds of tracks with the client asking to hear every nuance above every other nuance. End quote. And another possible explanation is that with all of those edits, so many more than there used to be, sound professionals and directors might get overly familiar with the dialogue. While on first listen, they might not have understood what an actor said, once they figure it out, they hear it correctly on every subsequent pass. Although other sound pros disagree, saying that being able to hear past that familiarity is part of the job. But yet another element in the gumbo is the discrepancy in the levels the film is mixed at and how it's played back in theaters. Directors are starting to go away from the ear-splitting levels they wanted for movies in the 90s, but oftentimes they're still too loud for many patrons, so some movie theaters turn the level down, which can distort the sound mixing. Landmark Theaters apparently has a policy of not playing movies over 5.5 on the cinema processor, even though the set standard and what movies are mixed for is at 7. And some think this problem really began when we switched from film to digital, and when movies were played at theaters on film, you had union projectionists who were fully trained and knew exactly what to do. When theaters went digital, a lot of them lost their jobs to underpaid theater employees who have a ton of other tasks on their plate and basically just press play on the movie. No training or expertise required, at least on the surface. So if some kind of problem comes up, if something is wrong, that employee, not really through any fault of their own, might not recognize it or know how to fix it. 
And then there are the two problems that I would have guessed when it comes to watching movies at home and feeling the need to turn on the captions, compressed audio, and subpar home theater setups. Many, but not all, movies do a separate mix for streaming, and that can help, but at the end of the day, almost all streamed movies are going to have compressed audio, which makes the file smaller so it can be more quickly sent across the internet, but shrinking it reduces its overall quality. At the moment, there's no industry standard for streaming specifications when it comes to audio, but Craig Mann, who won the Oscar for Whiplash, says that Netflix has the best quality standards in terms of dialogue audio specifically. And then there's the home theater experience, yet another wild card where the sound mixers just can't in any way control how the movie they worked on will be handled and received in reality. And this just seems like a giant mess that, honestly, I barely understand. Pearson wrote, quote, For audio mixers, the theatrical mix comes first, followed by a streaming mix. Then, a stereo mix will often be created, funneling the scope of the sound mix through just two simple speakers in a process that Ford vs. Ferrari Oscar winner Donald Sylvester likens to taking a beautiful steak and dragging it through the dirt. End quote. And further from Sylvester, quote, Some TVs take the 5.1 surround sound mix and they turn it into a stereo. They have algorithms inside the TV. It's not even our mix. We don't even know what it sounds like. I think a lot of tuners do that if you have a receiver. I know that they have algorithms and they also put coloring on it, like cinema approach that adds reflection and noise and stuff that you don't want in the mix. That is another problem. End quote. And part and parcel with that is the fact that a lot of sound professionals probably have really good systems in their own home theater, so they may not even be aware of how much they need to compensate for a more typical setup. So, contrary to the idea that more of us are turning on captions because we're compulsive completionists who need to know every detail of everything we consume, although that's not not true, it turns out there's a ton of problems with sound in movies right now. Pearson recommends a few solutions, namely educating more people in the industry on the importance and complexities of sound, sound professionals themselves continuing to work harder to adjust to the changing landscape, and a better working relationship between sound professionals and filmmakers who, the pros say, don't always understand the technical side of the job. But as for us audience members, well, I guess we'll keep using captions when we need to, but at least captioning technology is getting better and more accessible every day. Coming soon to an unidentifiable location on a remote outcrop in Tasmania, a 10 by 4 by 3 meter steel monolith designed to shamefully record all actions and inactions leading to our civilization's decline. And just in time for Christmas. The big old parallelogram-shaped structure made of 7.5 centimeter thick steel is being called by its designers Earth's Black Box. And while the structure itself has not yet been built, it has already started recording and collecting datasets, measurements, and interactions related to the declining health of our planet. The website says that its purpose is to, quote, provide an unbiased account of the events that led to the demise of the planet, hold accountability for future generations, and inspire urgent action, 
End quote. And quoting from ABC News Australia, the box will be filled with a mass of storage drives and have internet connectivity, all powered by solar panels on the structure's roof. Batteries will provide backup power storage. When the sun is shining, the black box will be downloading scientific data and an algorithm will be gleaning climate change related material from the internet. Broadly, it will be collecting two types of data. It will collect measurements of land and sea temperatures, ocean acidification, atmospheric CO2, species extinction, land use changes, as well as things like human population, military spending, and energy consumption. And it will collect contextual data, such as newspaper headlines, social media posts, and news from key events like Conference of the Parties or COP climate change meetings, end quote. Tasmania was chosen for both its geopolitical and geographic stability, beating out other contenders like Malta, Qatar, and Norway, where this Valbard seed vault, or doomsday vault, is. While the box itself is meant to be fairly impenetrable, you know, it needs to outlive us and any kind of civilization-destroying climate disaster, but still be accessible to, hopefully, future generations, the data it's collecting, both historical and oncoming, is accessible on the Earth's black box website right now. But if the climate emergency does play out as scientists fear, if the 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming we're on track for this century actually happens, and our civilization collapses, the point of the box is to instruct future civilizations on how to avoid the same fate. Although, like the Voyager golden records we sent into space in the 70s to explain humanity to extraterrestrials, my big layman's question on these things is always, what good is all of this if extraterrestrials or future civilizations don't have the technology or language to understand or do anything with it? The team behind Earth's black box are working on this and trying to design lots of instructions and multiple ways of accessing the data so that hopefully one will work. Much like the Voyager records are engraved with instructions on how to play the record on a phonograph-like device with appropriate measurements. It could still take decades or centuries for any of that to be deciphered by another civilization, but, you know, theoretically, the instructions are there. As for Earth's black box, the developers say, quote, It's impossible to anticipate who or what will find it, but it can be assumed that it will not be of any use unless it is discovered by someone or something with the capability of understanding and interpreting basic symbolism. Like the Rosetta Stone, we would look to use multiple formats of encoding. We're exploring the possibility of including an electronic reader that stays within the box and will be activated upon exposure to sunlight, also reactivating the box if it has entered a long-term dormant state as a result of catastrophe. End quote. But honestly, while they are genuine about wanting to have something that could warn future civilizations, they do cop that a secondary purpose of the black box is putting pressure on leaders right now. As Jonathan Kneebone, co-founder of artistic collective The Glue Society, who is working on the black box, said, quote, When people know they're being recorded, it does have an influence on what they do and say. That's our role, if anything, to be something in the back of everyone's mind. End quote. Well, if some climate disaster does cause our current human civilization to collapse, perhaps the honeybees will be okay. For all of the genuine concerns about honeybee populations being threatened by pesticides, loss of habitat, etc., the bees themselves are actually incredibly resilient. The New York Times reports that 
tens of thousands of honeybees survived nearly two months under layers of volcanic ash following the eruption of the Cumbre Vieja volcano in the Canary Islands. It's great news for the island of La Palma, where honey sales are a key part of the economy and bees an important player in the local ecosystem. It's a rare win after months of volcano-related devastation. But it's also a fascinating example of the strength of honeybees. These particular bees, canary black bees, survived for 50 days inside of their hives, which were buried under porous and light ash, a stroke of luck for the bees as this allowed oxygen to enter the hives. Quoting the New York Times, The bees used propolis, a resin-like mixture sometimes known as bee glue, to seal themselves inside the hive, said Antonio Quesada, a beekeeper in the Canary Islands and a spokesman for the Gran Canaria Beekeepers Association. They protected themselves from the gases of the volcano, Mr. Quesada said. The bees also made sure to leave open a tiny pathway to the outside so that they could later use to get out, he said. That behavior is typical of honeybees, who use propolis, which they produce from substances they collect from plants and buds, to plug tiny gaps in the hive to protect it from rainwater and drafts, said Natalie Steinhauer, a researcher in the Department of Entomology at the University of Maryland, end quote. Typical it may be, but the long survival in such conditions by these particular bees was still remarkable, according to Steinhauer. And despite the alarming mortality rate of bees in recent years, especially in the U.S., they remain adaptive and resourceful, Keith S. Delaplane, the director of the Honey Bee Program at the University of Georgia, told the Times. And quoting further, bees will build hives in tree hollows or abandoned tires, he said. Stories abound of honeybees that survived forest fires after the worker bees, fanning their wings, managed to lower the temperatures of the hives. When a fire destroyed the Cathedral of Notre Dame, a beekeeper who kept several hives on the roof was thrilled to find that the bees had stayed alive by gorging on honey. Dr. Delaplane said entomologists often traded stories of colonies that survived after their hives were swept away by floods. End quote. So sounds like we need to stop underestimating bees and maybe figure out how that black box in Tasmania can be designed to be interpreted by bees because clearly they will be outliving us. Well, all right, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.